and welcome to the Women's Edition, where women share their stories, experiences and challenges. I'm Carla and each week I share conversations with women who inform and inspire. We hear the lessons they've learned, their thoughts on social issues and what we can all learn from women's lived experiences. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. As it comes to the end of Birth Trauma Awareness Week, I wanted to share a conversation with you that I had with Jill Castle, or as she's known on her blog, Stoma Chameleon. Jill gave birth to her son at 34 weeks pregnant. Her birth experience was traumatic and changed the course of her life forever. It resulted in Jill having a permanent stoma, PTSD and postnatal depression. Jill shares her stories and adventures on her blog to offer hope and inspiration to other women who have experienced birth trauma and to show that you can still do anything that you put your mind to. I spoke to Jill about what she's achieved since her birth experience, life with a stoma and all of her adventures. Jill has completed a half Ironman, she's been skydiving, scuba diving and namely, she overcame her fear of swimming in open water to become a self-confessed cold water swimming addict. Swimming three times a week in a bikini from October to May to raise awareness and money for the Birth Trauma Association. She's also recently climbed the National Three Peaks in 24 hours and is training to swim the English Channel in 2023. She's overcome a lot to live a very active and happy life. And we discuss it all. Here's Jill. So you were a police officer. You were pregnant with your first child and then went into early labour. Could you talk us through what happened next and your stoma story? Yeah, sure. So um, I was 32. And like you say, I was a serving police officer. I was actually based in West Yorkshire in Bradford City Centre. So it was a pretty um, hardcore placement to have when you're just qualified as a police officer, which I had. And um, it was about six weeks before my due date. And I was woken up at seven o'clock in the morning on... uh, the first rest day having worked seven days on on the trot um i I was woken up seven o'clock in the morning by what i now know is a was a contraction and obviously because it was six weeks before my due date i've never had a contraction before this was my first baby i didn't really know what was happening and so i sort of just ignored it because obviously a contraction comes and then it disappears And, and i sort of thought oh you know, I, I couldn't really understand what it was that had woken me up. Anyway, about an hour and a half later, I had another one. And so I rang the early pregnancy unit and said, you know, this is the pain that I've had. I've got a little bit of pink in my, in my underwear, a little bit worried. And they said, yeah, that's fine. No problem. Just come in and we'll, we'll check you out. And I said this to my husband, who was actually home at the time, because he actually works away as a commercial diver. So it was just by sheer good fortune he was home because he was due to go away again and then come back again in time for the birth. Um, So I said to my husband, right, this is it. We're going to have to go to the hospital and get checked out. And he sort of said, oh, but I'm just going off to get my hair cut. (laughs) I said, "Uh, no, you're not. We're going to the hospital. So um, so anyway, off we went to the hospital, took all the hospital bags with us and everything. But, uh, you know, I wasn't remotely concerned at all because I, I didn't have another pain and, and I wasn't in any sort of um, in distress at all. So really, to cut a long, long story short, for that day, um, 20th of October 2011, I did go into established labour and um, because the baby was going to be early, they gave him 
well, they gave me a shot of steroids to protect his lungs because the lungs are the last part of the body to develop. So I was given that and that was when I really thought, oh, right, um, I'm having a baby today and I'm not like, I'm not prepared for this. At all. Like psychologically, I just, yeah, I, I couldn't really, I couldn't wrap my, my head around it at all. Um, and because he was premature, they had me on the hospital bed and they had me all like, um, you know, have loads of cannulas on me and loads of wires and tubes and all sorts of things trying to, to keep an eye on what his heart was doing. And because of this, it meant I couldn't actually get off the bed. So I, I was having to remain basically in one position because otherwise all the wires and everything came off. So that that was exacerbating the pain that I was in because I couldn't get in, you know, I couldn't walk around, I couldn't sit up properly, I couldn't um, make myself comfortable. Well, as comfortable as you can when you're in labour. So because they were monitoring him, they realised that his heart rate had crashed. And what happens when you give birth is that babies actually help themselves out of the birthing canal at the very end. But my son, because he was only four pounds seven, he got really tired and uh, he, he got stuck, essentially. And his heart rate crashed. So they had to rush me along quickly into theatre Give me an epidural which took three attempts which was horrendous because of course they say to you you know this is a really sharp needle you must remain still otherwise the needle is going to go into your spine in the wrong place and you're like right well that's easy to do when you're in labor and you're holding a, a pillow um and yeah it took them three attempts to get the epidural in but once they got the epidural in it, it was fine to be honest and um they whipped him out using forceps and um, I remember just sort of being shown this little mucusy covered baby um, to say, right, here he is. And then he was rushed away to special care because he was grunting, which is very common for a premature baby. Because like I say, their lungs are the last thing to develop. So it's quite common that they're born with this sort of grunting issue. However, we did hear him cry and we knew he was OK. So but I think at that point I was already detached. I, I, I sort of couldn't, yeah, I couldn't um, really work out what was going on and I couldn't remember what he looked like or, or, yeah, I just couldn't really get my head around the fact that I just had a baby. So anyway, I was then told, you know, you've, you've sustained a serious tear, so we're going to stitch you up in theatre because you've already had the epidural, so just going to stitch you up. And once we've done that, you'll go back on the ward and you'll be reunited with your baby and yeah, you just get on with the rest of your life. They sort of said, you know, he's going to have to stay in until the tubes were removed because he was fed with a tube. And they all they said to me was, you've had a bad tear. You must keep it clean and uh, make sure you have lots of showers. Don't, even though it's painful, don't not have a shower. You must keep it clean. You must keep it dry. And, you know, if you do all of that, you'll be fine. You'll just carry on with your life. So we went back on the ward. Uh, he, Sam was born at about eight o'clock at night. We got him back at two o'clock in the morning. And that was surreal because it was in the dark on a birthing ward. Um, and, you know, I look back and it's ridiculous, really. We were very British about it. So we didn't want to make any noise. We didn't want to wake anybody else up. And we didn't even want to turn on the light. So we had our mobile phone light like looking down at him and and I think that impacted it as well, because you're not, 
everything is in slow motion and really quite you're not allowed to sort of express yourself fully and that's the first moment really that you meet your baby so I think that had an impact on the bond as well um so then we were on the the ward Sam and I and obviously I was in an enormous amount of pain because of this tear but my husband and I um we remember looking around the ward and seeing all these women clutching onto the walls and unable to walk, staggering about, clearly in lots of pain. And my husband um, was actually a former Royal Marine. And he said, you know, Jill, this reminds me more of a field hospital. Uh, he said, you know, I've, we've never seen anything like it in our life. I mean, when, when women have babies, you see them when they're at home having a cup of tea or you might see them going around the shops, but you don't see them on the post-birth ward staggering about in agony and it was really shocking actually but because all these other women were displaying the same sort of pain that I was I just thought right well this is normal and um, I am not going to be defeated by this because all I've done is have a baby and I'm just going to crack on get on with it so that's really how I deal with everything anyway after a couple of days the pain was getting worse and worse and worse and I wasn't actually able to think properly because of the pain um, and I started to get poo in my underwear and it got so bad at one point that um, every time I was going to the toilet I was pulling the emergency buzzer to get assistance and I remember having a shower and you know being in such distress because I couldn't work out where all this poo was coming from and pulling the emergency buzzer and a midwife came along and I sort of said you know I don't understand where this is coming from I don't what's happened to my body I don't understand what is coming from where and she sort of just looked at me like I was insane and said oh you're absolutely fine just just you're fine just finish your shower and go back to your bed and and you know get dressed and you'll feel better after that um but the the pain was just getting unmanageable basically and four days after i had the baby i essentially collapsed in the corridor and a male midwife came across me and he said to me you know are you all right and i said no i, I can't do this anymore i can't i can't cope I, ca I cannot cope with this level of pain i can't even think properly and he said to me the now infamous line of, well, maybe it's your perception of the pain. Basically, you're a bit of a wimp. And uh, I was like, right, OK, well, I will just go back to my bed and die. Because I thought this is the, there's no way I'm coming out of this hospital with this sort of level of pain. And I knew, I just knew that this was not normal. Um, I was a really fit and healthy person before I went into the hospital and there's no way after four days of having a baby I should be collapsing in corridors and pulling emergency buzzers every time you go to the toilet and having poo all over the place. I just, you know, that's not normal, is it? Anyway, um, he had offered to examine me, but I said, no, I'm fine, thank you, because obviously he completely dismissed my concerns so I thought right no don't want you anywhere near me thank you very much I will just go back to my bed and um, fade away quite frankly anyway he'd obviously gone and told somebody because another midwife came and tried to examine me but I was in so much pain by that point she couldn't actually examine me 
So the alarm bell started ringing for everybody. The consultant was called and I was examined under gas and air because I couldn't get anywhere near me. And the consultant said, ah, right, okay, you've actually got a fourth degree tear because they thought it was a third degree tear. To be honest, at that point, I didn't really know the difference. All I knew was that a fourth degree was the worst and it meant you were split in two. And she said, you've also got a massive abscess around the tear, which is burst, and you've got a rectovaginal fistula, which is where you've got a hole between the rectum and the vagina, and poo comes out of, out of the vagina. That's why I had no idea where all of this poo was coming from. It was coming out of my vagina, as well as my backside. And um, the reason I was in so much pain is because, obviously, I had this enormous abscess. And she said, right, well, the only way that we can deal with this is to give you a stoma. And that will divert the faeces from your rectum. It'll go, you know, we'll cut a hole in your abdomen, bring out your large intestine, which will form a stoma. Then the faeces comes out of that and into a bag. And you will have that for 12 weeks. That will enable the area to heal, enable the infection to go away. And um, yeah, and again, it was all presented as pretty straightforward. Right, you'll have this. Then in 12 weeks, you'll come back and we'll, we will repair you and you will get on with your normal life. So I sort of just accepted it pretty much straight away, um, really, because I was in so much pain. Quite frankly, if they'd said, we're going to take off both your legs, I would have said, right, yeah, that's fine. Just do whatever, whatever you need to do to, to get me out of this pain. Um, but as we'll find out, it wasn't actually temporary. And um, it's, it, I've actually got a permanent stoma. But that's, um, yeah, that's more to this story, <laughs> which I don't know if you want me to just go into. If you'd like to, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. So um, so when I came home with the baby, um, obviously I had a premature baby and I now had a stoma to deal with as well. And I had this septic fistula tract. Now, I had this septic fistula tract for a year. So I was in and out of hospital for a year, getting it drained as an emergency because the infection kept spreading. But fistulas are extremely complicated. Um, only highly specialised colorectal surgeons can deal with them. And so nobody really wanted to touch me. So I was basically left like this for a year, um, having it drained. Um, so, so yeah, so there I was at home with this tiny baby, with this septic fistula tract and with this stoma. And as you can imagine, it was absolutely horrific. And after we'd been home for about a month, um, by which point my mum had come down to look after me because my husband had had to go back offshore to work. And I obviously couldn't drive. <laughs> well, basically, I wasn't really coping, unsurprisingly. Um, so after I'd been home for about a month, we got a letter from the hospital saying, you know, what happened to you should not have happened and we're launching an investigation. And that was the first moment that I thought, oh, right. Like up until that point, I just thought I'd been a bit unlucky. I just thought, oh, well, oh, well, that's just, this has just happened during the birth and, you know, I've just been a bit unlucky and I just have to suck it up. But that's the first point when I thought, oh, right, oh, ha hang on. Like, so you actually know this shouldn't have happened. So you know that there was a mistake. 
you know that's and and to be fair to the hospital you know they they launched this investigation they contacted me they alerted me basically to the fact that this was as, as a result of malpractice negligence um and i was invited to meet the consultant who delivered the baby and she was profusely apologetic which i found quite difficult because and i maintain this you know i'm not actually bitter about the whole thing i've never been bitter about it because i think that is a completely pointless emotion and does nothing for your life or for their life so when i went to meet her you know she was very apologetic and i said to her you look you know look at the end of the day you you saved my son's life because he crashed and you know he would have died if you hadn't got him out and yes, you made a mistake that has had catastrophic consequences for me. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're a human being and it wouldn't bring me any closure or any happiness to make you feel worse than you already do. Um, and I would say the same thing if I saw her now, to be honest. Um, it's not um, it's not a healthy, healthy approach, I don't think, to. Um, yeah. To be bitter and yeah i genuinely have never been bitter about what's happened but it then transpired during the hospital investigation that when this consultant had stitched me up after the delivery she had thought it was a second degree tear and um she realized that it wasn't she thought it was a third degree tear so she took all the stitches out and started again and sent me on my way missing the fact that it was a fourth degree tear which is the worst tear you can get which goes all the way through the inner and outer um sphincter muscles that you're, you're completely torn into and she'd missed that which is why feces came out and managed to infect the area because she hadn't stitched it up properly but because she'd already done these set of stitches that she'd taken out and then put in again there wasn't that there wasn't enough tissue left to then be able to do a proper repair so she essentially left me irreparable nobody could could sort me out um and when they realized all of this i mean i'm skipping through things here really because you know i had a hell of a lot of extremely embarrassing tests in ultrasounds and all that sort of thing for them to de determine the fact that i was irreparable once they realized i was irreparable then it became obvious that the stoma was permanent and when i realized the stoma was permanent i realized i was going to lose my job because at that time the police were bringing in well my force were anyway were bringing in new regulations which meant that if you were in the office for more than a year they could essentially get rid of you and i was obviously struggling so much with this stoma they didn't know any other police officer with a stoma um i couldn't imagine going back out on the beat um not just because of bags leaking all over the place and access to the toilet but also if i got stabbed in my stomach you know that's immediately um emergency surgery if it just nicks the stoma that's already out of my body you know so I was a lot more vulnerable than everybody else and that would put my colleagues at risk because they know that I was more vulnerable and you know it's just not fair so that's when I decided to go down the litigation route and I was actually advised to do that by the head of gynaecology at the hospital where I had the baby because she said you know the NHS foundation trust is for people like you 
because of course you know I was going to lose my job I was going to lose my pension and I was disabled so um yeah so I, I sued and I did win after only two years because it was so cut and dried and um yeah so that was that was my um experience really obviously it left Gosh. me with PTSD severe anxiety uh, postnatal depression didn't bond with my baby yeah story no you yeah, couldn't so... I, I'm amazed the maturity of not being bitter and but then I guess if you if you're bitter you kind of stay in the moment don't you exactly yeah exactly you, you don't move on so no yeah and how did you cope with all of that so you had all of that going on plus you were a new mum yeah it well well yeah not only that because obviously I like to make my life as complicated as possible um obviously I was at I was in West Yorkshire and my family and my husband's family are all from Northumberland, which is 150 miles away. So I didn't have any family. My husband worked away. So I was completely on my own. And I remember it got to January and he was going to go away for a month. And I thought, right, this is it. You're going to have to just do this month on your own. Right, you just, you've got to, I had to prove to myself that I could do it. And, um, well, you're a mum yourself. You know what it's like. You don't, you don't have the luxury of collapse. You, you, there, there was nobody else to look after this baby, and he was my baby. So, you know, I just, I just had to get on with it. I didn't have any other option at all. No. Um, so, so yeah, people often ask, you know, how did you do it? And I said, well, because I, there was nobody else to do it. So, you that just was had it, to really. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to suck it up, don't you? Um, yep. I'm not saying I just cracked on, you know, it was unbelievably stressful. And, and of course, I was going to all these hospital appointments and emergency things. And um, I was obviously seeing the occupational health for work and then all the solicitors things. But, you know, at all the time, I had to take this little baby with me because I didn't have any childcare. So, um, yeah, it was... Uh, I mean, I, I look back and I, I don't know how I got through it. I, I really... I'm quite amazed that I got through it unscathed, as did my baby. But, um, you know, women are amazing. Mothers, we are amazing. We we make it work somehow. And there's often no explanation for how we do what we do. No. We, we, we just do. Yeah. We just mother. We just get on with it. With birth trauma, could you tell us more about what it is and and injuries through childbirth and why you think it's important to raise awareness of it because I'm sure there must be people listening who haven't heard of it yeah well I I think it is extremely important I think um the problem we have in our society at the moment is women are patronized so people say uh, I mean I've even had this people say this to me about my blog um which is all about my birth but also really focusing on the things I've done since and saying you know um oh we don't want people to know who are pregnant because it will frighten them and I my argument is really really patronizing it is much better to give women the opportunity to have more information um about something that they're going to go through which is having a baby <laughs> if they're pregnant it, it just just allow them to be grown-ups and make that decision about whether they want to read the information and hear the stories don't 
hide the information and not tell the stories just because you don't want to frighten people because I, I just think that's a really patronizing way of approaching what is a really essential part of, of being a woman sometimes I suppose not all the time because not everybody can have a baby but um yeah and and, and for me personally I didn't really know much about tears at all I mean, all I knew was that four was really bad and you didn't want a fourth degree tear. Third degree tear wasn't quite as bad as a fourth and a first and a second were, were nothing. But I didn't I didn't really know what this meant. I didn't know, like, well, obviously you tear, you tear your vagina, but I was just like, well, tear to where? How, how do we know what a fourth degree is? And, and a fourth degree tear is when you're torn all the way from your vagina, all the way through your rectum and through the external and internal sphincter, the, the muscle itself. The third degree tear, I think it's the external sphincter muscle, not the internal as well. Uh, don't quote me on any of this because I'm not a medical professional, but um, but yeah, there, there are all these categories of tears. And the reason I think it's important that we know about these is if I had known that about fourth degree tears and I had known that getting feces on your underwear is a sign of a fourth degree tear then my god would I have been shouting and screaming from day one and had I done that then I wouldn't have got the abscess I wouldn't have quite frankly nearly died from sepsis and maybe I could have been repaired or they could have done something about it or um I wouldn't have been in such distress and I wouldn't have been in such danger either I, I think it's a very common phrase that we say, but we don't often put it into practice. And that is knowledge is power. And it really is. And I, I just think, you know, since I've been coming out and talking about my experiences, the amount of women and the amount of women that I know and, that you know, that I know through my mum and that come to me and say, oh, you know, I experienced this. And I wasn't sure if anybody else did because nobody talked about it. And People have some very severe injuries and lifelong incontinence issues as a result of having a baby. And if it's not talked about, then you suffer in silence and with shame. And I just don't think that's that's right. We have to look after our mothers because we're the ones who are bringing the next generation into the world. So we're really important. So we need to be looked after. Um, but I do want to say that it's extremely rare to get the injuries that I had. I think it's like half a percent it's very rare but a significant proportion of women do experience some sort of injury during birth and yes the vast majority of them can be repaired but i just think it's just really important to give us the information oh i think so i did hypnobirthing which everyone thinks is kind of weird but it actually gives you all the information to question so the whole process when I was given birth, we were, we questioned everything. The midwives must have yeah. been like, who are these people? <laughs> but I just wanted to know. I was like, why are you inducing me? Why am I hooked up to this IV drip? Can I stand up? And they were like, what? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but it's your body and your baby. So, of course, why why shouldn't you ask these yeah, questions? Yeah, but if I hadn't done the course, I, would, I wouldn't know anything. I wouldn't have known anything. Um, and it rem kind of reminds me of what you were saying. Of It, it reminds me of miscarriage, of um going through that completely alone because you don't tell anybody generally and yeah, then you go through yeah. it and it's really hard to explain it to people uh, afterwards because they didn't know you were pregnant 
yeah I found that really hard yeah. and then if you don't talk about it afterwards I'm quite open about it then nobody talks yeah. about it well and they, and again the amount of people that have had a miscarriage it's quite amazing and you know I'm you know what you've probably gathered I'm very much heart on my sleeve you know I, I don't really care I tell people everything I'm not really bothered it's the way I've, I've always been maybe it's my way of coping with things or maybe it's just my personality I don't know but you know I was very open about my miscarriage and um you know the amount of the amount I mean the amount of people I had no idea that had miscarriages you know some really good friends of mine and um I think it is comforting to know. I mean, obviously, nobody wants anybody else to go through that experience, but that shared experience is comforting. Um, and, uh, you know, life's tough enough, isn't it? So, you know, we should get comfort where we can. Yeah, and not feel completely alone and odd and like it's yeah. only you. Um, yeah, exactly. So what was your turning point for you? Do you remember, it? was there like a light bulb moment where you thought, differently like about your life with a stoma or was it kind of a, a slow process from recovery to looking to the future yeah no there was definitely a light bulb moment um uh I mean I'd, I'd sort of did kind of I did accept my stoma pretty early um and I, I do remember making a conscious decision on how I was going to think about my stoma because a lot of people don't realize how much control and power you have over your own thoughts and feelings and I remember being on these miserable awful stoma forums full of all these miserable people and some people said oh you know every time I look down at my stoma I'm reminded of you know the awful reason as to why I have it and you know to be fair most of the people have them as a result of bowel cancer or Crohn's or colitis disease you know all these horrific situations that mean people end up with a stoma and my situation obviously wasn't any less horrific. It was awful as well. And I thought, well, hang on. I am not looking at my stoma like that because I see it every day. It is on my body every day of my life. And so if I start my day with that attitude of, oh, look, there's my stoma. Oh, God, that's ruined my life. Well, well, there you go. You've ruined your day. Um, so so I, I made a real conscious decision that, you know, I was not going to look at my stoma like that. And so therefore I didn't. Um, so that enables me to accept it quite early on, I suppose. Um, but I was rushed into accepting it as well because I didn't have time not to because I had a baby to look at. You know, I just had to sort of I was just getting on with things, really. But then I had my light bulb moment when I read an article by someone who was an athlete with a stoma and she said I'm pretty sure she came from the Crohn's and colitis um, community which is they're really severe diseases that affect your your bowel and you know these people are in agony agony for years and years and years and anyway she said you know my stoma saved my life and I'm so grateful for the life it has given me and I suddenly thought well what has my stoma given me because at that point, it was all focused on what it had taken away from me, which was, of course, my job, which I loved more than anything else, really. It wasn't just a job. It was like a whole way of life. It was a family. It was everything. Um, and, and so I thought, right, well, come on, you know, what has your stoma given you? And I thought, right, well, if I didn't have my stoma, I would be incontinent. I would be pooing my pants. I wouldn't be able to leave the house. And I would be miserable. 
and so then I thought oh but well no I have a stoma so I, I can leave the house and, and by that point I'd managed to sort out the right bags for me so they weren't leaking anymore and you know I was actually able to to do stuff and obviously by that point I'd had my fistula fixed um and then I did I started doing a little bit more research and I started looking into what stoma products were like back in say the 1950s and what we've got now is I mean incomparable to what they were like then you know they're really discreet they're really secure they're waterproof they're not bulky you know they're absolutely amazing and there are products to solve any issues that you might have with your stoma like sore skin and irritation and allergies or, or leaks or whatever and I just started thinking right well look this is what it's given me it's, it's given me the opportunity to go out and do things and to not be incontinent and and that was like a real um game changer when I just thought all oh, right well there you go that's what it could have been like so that that I, but and I do remember that and then being a real turning point a real like right right okay then well let's go off and explore everything that I can do with my stoma. Could you talk to me a bit about your adventures because you started off with cycling and swimming to kind of build your strength. I'd had quite a few years when my life wasn't I wasn't in control of my life and what had happened to me had been completely out of my control and I wanted to get back control of my life and I wanted to be the one deciding what I was and wasn't doing because when I was in hospital you know there's a bit of a chat about when you've got a stoma oh no will you you know, you've got to be really careful that you don't lift anything too heavy because you'll get a hernia and, um, oh no, you can't go diving because of the pressure and, you know, all the, it was all just quite negative really. Um, and I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to, to take back con control of, of my life. And, um, so, so yeah, so I thought, right, well, first off I need to lose weight. So I saw, um an advertisement for an indoor cycling class so i thought right i'm going to do this because it's inside there will be toilets there um if i'm knackered after like three seconds i can get off and i'm not going to be stuck in the middle of the countryside somewhere and i can go at the back of the class and no one can see me so off i went and um this was precipitated by the way um by me getting out of breath going up the stairs and things and i just thought hang on this is outrageous absolutely outrageous you're 35 I'm, nope I'm, I'm not having this <laughs> at the age of 35 so anyway I went off to the cycling class and it happened to be run well a lot of the instructors happened to be from the local triathlon club and I had always wanted to do a triathlon and I'd always said oh I could never do one of those because it would be too tiring and even though I'd cycled when I was younger I'd always been a really good swimmer and I'd been a, a runner, you know, I'd captain of the hockey team. I was on everything and did everything. But I was just like, oh, no, I, but I couldn't do that. So anyway, this is where I met the local tri club. And, you know, some of them just seemed like such normal people. And I just started thinking something which has been long been a theme of mine, which is, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And um you know, I had that whole year in particular after I first had Sam where I literally couldn't do things. I mean, if I walked too fast, I, I ended up in hospital with my septic tract, like, because it got too hot. And 
and obviously I was physically unable to walk for quite a while immediately afterwards. And so, yeah, I was really incapacitated. So when I had this little idea of, you know, well, I, I've always wanted to do a triathlon. And then I thought, well, why not then? You had that whole year when you couldn't do a thing and now you've got the chance to do it. Just very well get on with it. So I thought, right, I'm going to sign up. So I signed up for a sprint triathlon. I was absolutely terrified. I contacted the organisers about a thousand times um, with all my worries about, well, what if my bag leaks on the way around? What if the, what if I need to change my bag at some point? And, you know, they'd never had anyone with a stoma do the triathlon because it was just a local one, you know. And they said, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, we'll tell the marshals somebody will be able to come and get you. And, you know, it's no, you're not going to get disqualified. And I just thought, right, I'm going to do it. So... So I went and I did it and it was absolutely fine. I didn't have any problems whatsoever. Obviously, I thought I was going to die, <laughs> but um, but it was fine. And I, and I just got really hooked, to be honest. And I found some really good friends at the tri club and I really enjoyed the training, especially the swimming. I absolutely loved the swimming. And, um, and yeah, I, I just decided from then that I was going to do the next stage up, which is an Olympic um triath um well it's a standard try they call it so i did the next stage up and I, and I did that 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 was okay and then the whole club for some obscure reason everyone decided that they were going to do this half iron man in nottingham in 2017 and again i just thought i could do this i know i can do it because this is what life is all about for me like it's all about little bricks and you, you can't, I couldn't have started off by doing a half Ironman. Like, I just couldn't have done that. Like, you, you have to build your way up to things and get your confidence. And that confidence is what can enable you to achieve a lot more than you think you can. So anyway, by this point, I thought, do you know what? Let's just do this. And, and I'm going to come out really publicly and I'm going to do this for the Birth Trauma Association. So I set up my fundraiser. And I came out really publicly and told everyone my whole story, you know, in the media and in the local paper and things. And and yeah, and I, and I did it and I raised £5,000 for the for Birth Trauma Association. So as, but as part of this, I had to do an open water swim. And very embarrassingly, um, when I was eight, I watched Jaws. And when I was eight, I was actually learning how to sail with my brother. And I loved it. I was quite... A natural at it because like I was saying I was I was you know just fit and athletic and um anyway I watched Jaws that was it never went sailing again just absolutely terrified of going out my depth like you know it actually it destroyed the sea for me and uh yeah so so I had to sort of overcome this open water swimming fear in order to do this half Ironman so I went to a local lake which was awful duck Poo Lake, we call it, horrible, full of weeds and green and disgusting and oh my, ugh, absolutely rank. And um, I mean, I remember doing many a starfish in there because you do that if you're panicking, like just doing a starfish with everyone going, just calm down, just you know, don't panic. And oh, it was awful. Anyway, I did it and I did the half Ironman and, it, and that was that was that. But that took me on to my next, well, my my major fear, which was the sea. And um, I really, really wanted to get back to the eight-year-old girl that I had been. I mean, I only lived 10 minutes from the sea. 
and I've, I've all my life I've watched people locally enjoying the sea and just thinking I, I really wish I could do that and but then again I was like consumed with this this desire to to just do everything and anything I, I don't want to get to the age of 85 and say oh, I really wish I'd tried that when I had the chance so I, I just became fixated really and I just thought right that's it I am going to beat this way. I like my motivation was I, I wanted to to overcome it more than I was afraid of it and um, I joined um, a local group of sea swimmers which <laughs> I mean it's funny really we, we, we laugh about it now and um, I mean this is only about four years ago four and a half years ago and when I first went I had this really weird thing that if I put my face in the water and I opened my eyes and I couldn't see, I mean, I would completely panic. I mean, I just, oh, it was, oh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but you know, your chest just contracts, you can't breathe properly and horrendous. So I used to swim with my eyes shut when my face was in the water and open my eyes when I was breathing because it was always fun call that I was doing. And that was like my little method. And I went to basically the same beach with the same people for a year and a half, keeping my eyes shut the whole time. Until one of my friends said, you know, Jill, if you don't open your eyes, you could swim into a rock or something. Like, you, you, you must start opening your eyes in the sea. So I started opening them for literally, like, three seconds, and then five seconds, and panicking, panicking, panicking. But I was doing this at... Uh, in the summer when it's a lot clearer so I could actually see that there was nothing there and I went to the same place and I went with the same people who are so confident and yeah I mean it took me a year and a half to finally open my eyes and I just thought yeah just I don't know I'm, my brain must have just one day gone all oh, right this is fine you know it's fine you've been coming here for so long and like you've, you've been when it's really clear there's literally nothing there and with people who come all the time and they gave me confidence and um and yeah that was like a massive massive thing for me to overcome um and uh, and I was I was just so pleased and it opened up a whole new world for me that I'd missed out on and, and that I'd wanted to have um so so yeah so then I did my my paddy diving course because I'd always wanted to do that but I was like oh my god I couldn't possibly because I'd get eaten by a shark but um, I did it and it was amazing. So yeah, let's talk about your swimming because earlier this year you did loads of winter sea swimming in a bikini. Firstly, <laughs> how did you come up with that challenge? Because <laughs> it must be uh, so yeah, cold. Well, I started off sea swimming in a wetsuit and I did that for about two and a half years. And um, I was getting sick of my wetsuit because loads of people that I swam with didn't wear a wetsuit and they used to come to the beach you know, basically get out the car and get in the sea, <laughs> get in the car and go home. And I had to get there a bit earlier to faff about with my wetsuit and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, oh, no, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to wear my wetsuit anymore. So I started taking my wetsuit off and um, I became what we call a skin swimmer, which is when you don't wear a wetsuit, you just wear a swimming costume. Um, and the previous winter I had... Um, Nearly made it through winter in a swimming costume, but I still had um, neoprene socks, neoprene gloves, about three hats. And at one point I had a thick neoprene swimming costume as well. And that all those things, I can tell you now, make a massive, massive difference um, it, when it's really cold. So that was one win. That was my first winter. 
my second winter was going pretty well and then we had covid and uh we couldn't get to the sea and, and that was the end of that so that brings us to last summer and in june last year for the summer solstice for no reason at all uh, you'll find with me a lot of things i just do literally very spontaneously without any forethought because if i think about things too much i don't do them so i have to be quite like right i'm going to do this then so last uh summer solstice so like a year ago actually pretty much i decided i was going to wear a bikini and get my stoma bag out for the first time ever in public just because i like to challenge myself and i just sort of thought wonder if you can do that and I thought well of course you can why can't you like everybody knows that you've got one and it was just like a little challenge to myself so anyway I put my bikini on and uh obviously nobody took anyone notice because they all knew I had a bikini anyway so it was a bit of an anticlimax um which made me laugh but I did speak to a couple of people there who I didn't know who sort of like came over and said oh my I don't know my uncle had one from bowel cancer and I, and I suddenly realised, like, wow, this is this is a way to get people talking. And I was like, oh, well, I, you know, this is how I've got mine. And then that got onto the whole birth conversation and that would bring more people into it. And I just thought, wow, this is actually, this is a powerful way of getting attention. So then we get to August and I was thinking, oh, I want some sort of, some sort of challenge, swim type challenge to do in winter. And then, I, I mean, I literally, I didn't put any thought into it. I just thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to wear nothing but bikini. And everyone was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, no, because that'll be really hard. That's like really, really hard. And, and then I had the idea, oh, I know, I'll get a sign and put it on the beach and tell people why I'm wearing a bikini and that, you know, I've got a stoma as a result of childbirth and that 30,000 women every single year experience some sort of traumatic birth and 170,000 people in the UK alone have a stoma. So I thought, well, you know, this is like a really great way of publicizing all of this. And yeah, I mean, like I say, I hadn't really, <laughs> hadn't really thought about it properly. I just thought, right, well, yeah, I'm gonna do that. Um, and then, then we get obviously towards winter and we've still got COVID lingering and we knew there was gonna be another wave. So I, Thought, oh well I better be prepared because the very first lockdown we weren't even allowed to go to the beach so I thought right I'm going to get a bath and put it in my garden so if I can't get to the beach or or if the sea's too rough then I'll go in my bath and uh, yeah so that's what I did and I committed to doing this three times a week from the 1st of October until the 1st of May 2021 and uh, yeah so yeah so that's what I did and what an experience <laughs> was absolutely mad what so do you enjoy this do you enjoy swimming outdoors oh, now? i love it yeah and the cold water thing it's really it's definitely made me calmer my husband would probably strongly disagree because i'm still like zebedee but um yeah and, and the, the the swimming community is just a fantastic welcoming understanding empathetic community who it's just filled with I mean, a lot of people who do this do have mental health problems, which, you know, people laugh and say, well, you have to have a mental health problem before you'll leap into the sea in nothing but a bikini, which is probably right. But there's a reason why we all do this. And it's because it really does bring peace to you. And um, it brings a calmness to me that I don't really experience when I do anything else. Now, I will say that some people you'll see 
people um we follow that guy called um i've forgotten his name now that hoff or something the ice man will will hoff or something anyway he he's an ice man and he takes ice baths and a lot of people love these ice baths because they just you know they get a real endorphin rush from it um but i don't <laughs> can i just say that i don't i don't like them i don't like the water if it's less than like six or seven degrees it's quite frankly it's just really painful and it's really miserable and it's really hard work and it's awful um and i don't get any sort of joyful buzz out of it so the baths that i did i mean at one point one of them i mean i was smashing ice to get in it and it was 0.5 degrees i think was my lowest um no thanks <laughs> so sorry minus 0.5 so anyway it was oh hang on the cat's playing um yeah the was the coldest that, that it was and that was just I mean, it was awful it was so painful but my god what an experience it was i mean by that point i'd started up my blog and i was doing everything on a live feed and i had so much support from people and it just went it just went crazy i mean i had itv news no it itn the local news and i was on there and um then the bbc wanted to bbc world service they wanted to do an interview with me in a little video which just went nuts i mean it was in the top seven of the must-see videos for three days i mean it was watched by nearly a million people on facebook and instagram alone in one week i mean it just it was just crackers to be honest and i thought god it's just me you know prattling about with my bikini um in the north sea like it was just but i think it just i mean the the conversations that i had with people were so moving um and even when there wasn't much to the conversation you know i would get countless women who would read my sign and then just look at me and just just say thank you and and you just think i i like there's an understanding there that that um, they knew what I'd been through and I knew that they had obviously suffered themselves in some way and you know the husbands as well that would just give me a nod or you know I mean I had some people who became really emotional and um yeah it was just and and the the gratitude people were so grateful you know they were like oh, thank you so much for talking about all of these things you know and isn't this amazing that you can see this on your local beach and I don't know I just think it was um I mean, people thought I'd put like loads of thought and organisation into it, but I didn't. It just sort of had a life of its own by the end. Just organically grew, I guess. And also, you're breaking you're breaking down the stigma, aren't you? Of yeah, exactly. Of, yeah, of birth yeah. trauma and stomas, and but the whole narrative, isn't it? It's like everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so do you get women contacting you a lot? All the time. I've actually just had a message on Instagram before we started recording from someone who. Um, said I uh, just wanted to get in contact with you to thank you thank you for normalizing swimming with a stoma because I've got one as a result of birth injury and I've just taken my 15 week old daughter swimming for the first oh, time amazing. she said you made it look so simple that it really gave me the confidence to do it and I was like well there you go that's what it's all about what would you say to people who's who have a fear like the fear are you afraid of flying like was it a fear oh I'm terrified I'm pathetic cry on on airplanes and and fears normal and yeah I mean crikey I'm I've signed up to some of the English channel in 2023 and 
oh god i mean the idea of me jumping off that boat in the dark and swimming to the shore is absolutely terrifying but um i think you've got to accept that you've got the fear so i accept right i'm i'm frightened of that but like i was saying earlier life's all about building little bricks so i know all these little fears that I've overcome all these little bricks that I've already got in my wall that are going to help me get over to the channel. So, like, I know how far I've come with tackling my fear of the sea. Like, I mean, I've I've swum all over. I've swum with seals. I've done loads. Of things. I've jumped off boats. I've um, I'm not bothered. I have swum in the dark, but close to shore with other people. You know, all this, I would never in a million years have thought I was capable of that. So, like, I know that I am capable of overcoming things that I'm frightened of but I only know that because I've I started off small and I started off with little challenges and um, like that month when I was on my own with Sam the very first time in that January 2012 um, you know I was really anxious but I did it and so that gave me a bit of confidence to do other things and um, I, I think that's how well that's how I approach and overcome fear and, and a lot of it is also a theme of, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And I just think, well, yeah, like, uh, but also you've got to, you've got to want something on the other side of the fear. If there's no motivation, you're not going to do it. Because what, like, what's the point? <laughs> just remain scared. Um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but, but I really want to over, I want to swim the channel. So I, I want to overcome this. I, I wanted to enjoy the sea passionately and wanted to overcome that. So I've, I've done it. And I always say to people, well, if you don't really, 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 really want to do something, you're not going to bother facing all those fears, are you? I was going to say, what's your next planned adventure? And I'm guessing that's the English Channel. Is there a lot to do? Is there a lot of prep for that one? Oh, yeah. Well, for me, there's obviously a lot of fears to overcome. Uh, Main main fears are swimming on my own. Oh my god, swimming on my own in the sea. Uh, obviously, I'll have a boat, but I will be the only one in the sea. And nobody who does the channel does it all in daylight. I'll have to do some of it in the dark. So that's like they're big, they're big ones. Um, yeah, so they're they're pretty big. So I've got to overcome them. Um, I have been coming back from shoulder injuries, so I've only just started back swimming probably six weeks ago. And uh, what I'm doing is I'm changing my stroke technique to make sure I don't get injured and just to make sure I'm more efficient. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's massive. It's ma- I mean, more people have climbed Everest than have swum the channel. And uh, it's 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 the top swimming challenge, really. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, there's loads. I mean, next year I want to do the 10-mile Lake Windermere swim because you know I need to build up to that to then build up the following year to do the channel which is 21 miles as the seagull flies but of course you've got the tides that you're swimming across so it's normally about 25 miles um I say this so blasely oh it's about 25 miles uh secretly inside I'm like bloody hell what are you um but no no it'll be fine I just have to build up to it you know I just have to yeah, and I'll be the first person with a stoma to do it. So there's there's all of that coming into it as well. I don't know about the bag and, you know, I've got a nutritionist and nothing ventured, nothing gained, you know. And I think, crikey, you know, even if, not that this is going to happen because I'm going to do it, even if I only do 14 miles, I mean, crikey, that's quite something for yeah. someone who 
four years ago couldn't put their face in the sea without shutting their eyes so yeah the english channel do you have to look out for boats well no that's what you when you go across the the channel you hire a boat and they have a pilot they don't have a captain and they have a pilot because it's the busiest shipping channel in the world yeah and they need to literally navigate you across okay that's what that's their job his job is to make sure i don't get flattened by (laughs) a cruise liner (laughs) and what year is that 2023 2023, August 2023, and that's been, um, I've got a full sponsorship from Hollister Incorporated and Dansac, who are Stoma product companies. Ah, okay. Really, really fortunate they've paid for the whole thing. Oh, incredible. Um, and Glynn solicitors have paid for me to attend a swim camp in Dover this year, which will be amazing. So I'll get to meet my pilot and do some night swimming and, yeah, go to Dover basically and stand on the beach and go, oh my God. <laughs> I can't see France and I have to go over there somewhere. Uh, so. And lastly, how can people find you? Where's your blog? What's uh, So my blog is, it's called Stoma Chameleon and it's on Instagram and Facebook as Stoma Chameleon and Twitter as well. And I've also got a website which has got loads of stuff on there and that's at stomachameleon.com or one word. And yeah, and there's loads of stuff on there. Basically, it's just aimed to make you smile. I do cover some serious topics as well, you know, like the miscarriage and I've spoken at the International Birth Tech Conference and things like that. But, um, you know, my main aim is really just to get people off their backsides and smiling. Brilliant. That's a fantastic end. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. No, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks so much to Jill for coming on the podcast. She was so honest and raw and full of positivity. Definitely go check out her blog, Stoma Chameleon, because that's how I found her and it's a really very inspiring read. I have exciting news. I've been working on a website for the podcast so I can add transcripts for episodes. So I'm trying to make this podcast a lot more accessible for people. And also I'm writing about the topics that come up because I said I was going to do that in series one and I just did not have the time. To be fair, I don't really have the time now, but at least if I've got the website, um, there's something to put the articles on. So that's going to be really exciting. Thank you for listening as always, and I will see you soon. Bye. Bye.